Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 85 of the National Security Law Podcast brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It is Tuesday morning, August 7th. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, I don't, I, I mean, we both worried that this was going to happen. I think we thought it would happen sooner rather than later, but it's episode 85 and we don't have a lot to talk about. <laughs> you know, this finally, maybe, could be a reasonably short episode. Nah. Nah. <laughs> Uh, we may not have much to talk about, but we're hardly going to let that stop us. I was going to say, it's never stopped us before. I mean, I, I, you know, maybe our listeners want to hear me talk for 45 minutes about why the Supreme Court granted rehearing yesterday in our Ortiz trailer petition, Abdi Rahman versus United States, but I doubt it. We could, you know, certainly mention that, and that would be something that could get us through at least the first two minutes of the show. I was going to say, that might get us 90 seconds in. Um, we could do a Paul Manafort trial update, but... So is everybody. Right, everybody else is doing You don't that. need us for that. We could talk about how the president now basically admitted that, you know, that whole thing about the Trump Tower meeting, <laughs> that, that was, the smoking gun tape 40, you know, 40, 44 years later. Well, we will not do any of that. And instead, to fill the time, we've decided so, something we originally set out to do on this podcast. I was going to say, this is like, this was originally our, like, our original plan when we sketched this out was, you know, every week we'll do a deep dive into some different area of national security law that folks may not yeah. know that well. Right. And then the news took over. Yeah, we actually thought the news segment was just sort of a thing. We'll, we'll recap the news right. and then we'll get to work. But... No. And it hasn't turned out that way. So so we thought we would start, I mean, and, and and we're curious, of course, for what you guys think of this, and if you think this is a good format, and if you like this idea, we thought we would start with what we see as perhaps one of the biggest national security law cases of of our era, I guess we could call it, right, mm-hmm. of, of the of recent times. We thought we would do a really deep dive into Hamdi. Hamdi, the 2004 Yasser Hamdi case. Absolutely one of my favorite tenures. There's a lot going on here. It is really uh, structural yeah. for uh, detention and for understanding of the AMF in the post 9-11 period. Yep. And I think it's something that we would have gotten to in the first few episodes, <laughs> but we got kind of busy over the past 84 episodes. And, and, and you know, we talk about Hamdi fairly often when we talk about Doe versus Mattis, mm-hmm. um, but we've never, I think, really gone back and done a deep dive into actually how Hamdi got to the Supreme Court, the you know multiple competing opinions in the Supreme Court, what Hamdi doesn't actually answer that's still on the table today, all pretty big yeah. stuff, could could be something that might be useful. Might be good to know. Or everyone's so, tuning off now and going yeah, back exactly. to Yeah, exactly. If, you, if you only show up here for the Trumplandia segment, uh, that was the Trumplandia segment. So <laughs> Check uh, back next week. Move along. Nothing to see here. I'm sure next week we'll more than make up for it. Sergeant Drebin. There's nothing to see here. <laughs> um, the exactly. sound of fireworks exactly. in the background. Uh, we should, you know, we should have a thing where we slide in just a very subtle naked gun reference in, into every. Episode. Well, I was thinking that I would slide in a series of subtle Jean Luc Picard references. Oh, in honor did, of his return. Did you see this? Yeah, um, I gotta say, I'm I'm a little worried. This is gonna be, uh, you know, uh, as okay, bad so as we're talking as bad as Star Trek Discovery is. So we're talking about Star Trek: The Next Generation, the heroic Jean Luc Picard. Apparently, Patrick Stewart has announced that he has been retained and has agreed to come back and reprise the character. I don't for think some, that's apparent. He did announce. Yeah, it. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Figure of speech injecting itself for no... It is technically apparent. It is literally apparent because you can actually view the statement from him. So anyways, hey, if you're going to be picky, I can be picky. Yes. Um, Two complaints. I, I got to say, I, I'm, a, I'm a little concerned this is 
kind of be a little bit like uh, some great athlete returning to the team, you know, many years after having retired. And it's like, ah, it's, it's kind of better when you just quit at the top. Kind of like the Gilmore Girls revival. I don't know about that one, but the Arrested Development yeah. reboot was yeah. just didn't recapture the magic. I thought. Yeah. I mean, listen. I'm I'm I, I I'm I'm both a Trekkie, and my my sister-in-law's husband Matt Myra is like Mr. Star Trek these days. He hosts one of the most popular Star Trek podcasts, Star Trek: The Next Conversation. Oh, that's um, good. He hosts, they must be going crazy. Oh my gosh, this. he hosts the uh, Star Trek Discovery After Show on CBS. I mean, so so Matt was Matt was very excited about this. All right. Well, it's definitely going to be good for the of ratings. Course, Matt wore his his captain's dinner jacket <laughs> from the one of the early scenes of Star Trek Nemesis to <laughs> the Star Trek convention in Las Vegas where this was all announced. Well, it is formal wear, so. Indeed. Yes. My only claim to fame is that I was once retweeted by Marina Sirtis. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, that's impressive. What eh, was the tweet about? I don't know. It was something political. All right. Oh. <laughs> um, so Hamdi. Yeah. Let's okay. start at the beginning. Okay. So first, let's talk about who Yasser Esam Hamdi was We have the same birthday. Is that right? He's uh, September September twenty sixth. So he's a year same he's, year. One, he's one year younger than I am. But but Hamdi, me, Jack Goldsmith, and Derek Jinks all born on September twenty sixth. Wait, what? That's like some kind of crazy <laughs> national security <laughs> law convergence. That's amazing. Well, I learned this because when I was reading Jack's <laughs> when I was reading Jack's first book, The Terror Presidency. Yeah, he talks about going to meet Hamdi on his fortieth oh, yeah? birthday, yeah. September twenty sixth, two thousand two, and I was like. Huh. I wonder if Hamdi mentioned, oh, and you know, it's my birthday too. They say it's your birthday. All right. Um, so he's born in Louisiana. Yeah, Baton Rouge. He's September born September 26, 1980. And uh, he was there because his, his parents are both Saudi citizens and they're living in Louisiana. I don't know this, but I've always assumed it was something to do with the energy industry. I think that's right. It makes, makes sense. Um, and I, I gather fairly quickly moved back to Saudi Arabia with him. So he's a dual citizen, not unlike our friend John Doe. Indeed. A birthright citizen of the United States, but um, a citizen of Saudi Arabia and lives his life up till just before he turns 21. And, and I guess, uh, well, no, you're, you're a year younger. You're a year older? Younger. Older. Younger. Older. Older. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you're already 21. So just before he <laughs> turned 21, he... I am already 21. He celebrated in the traditional way by leaving his home and going to Afghanistan. Oh, yeah. Totally. Uh, he ends up in a Taliban training camp. This is all in the summer prior to 9-11. So summer 2001. Um Obviously, 9-11 occurs, and by that November, as I, I guess you can no longer assume people recall this. Some people have only known this through studying it. Um, so September 11th, 2001, the attack. Uh, in October, there were U.S. interventions in Afghanistan, but they weren't uh, visible to the public in the way that the uh, – uh, Operation Enduring Freedom was. That's the big overt military intervention in November that very that initially has an air campaign component. The Taliban seemed to be holding their ground a little bit for a little while. There there were some angst-ridden news articles at the time. Steve, I'm sure you remember people saying, "Oh, what have what have we gotten into? Maybe that maybe we're going to be like the Soviets here." And then once once the momentum kind of built up and the air power really took hold, um, it just crushed the Taliban as a conventional military force. And uh, so their formations broke. The, the al-Qaeda units began fleeing towards Pakistan. Uh, for a variety of just regular Taliban military units, they're, they're, they're basically trapped. They have nowhere to go. Uh, Hamdi is, is with a group, uh, at what ultimately becomes sort of a famous group, uh, hundreds of Taliban fighters who were captured by Northern Alliance forces in Kanduz and ultimately incarcerated at a prison, held in a prison near Mazari sharif And this is famous because a, a sort of a 
prison riot breaks out. They turn on the guards, and it's while some CIA case officers are there uh, interviewing some some of the prisoners. Uh, John Walker Lind is amongst these Taliban's, and so was Yasser Hamdi. So two U.S. citizens uh, amongst the Taliban fighters there. CIA officer Johnny Michael Spahn is killed in that riot. That's that's why most people are familiar with this. Uh, the riots brought under control when the Northern Alliance began pumping water into the area the prisoners were controlling. Uh, Hamdi was amongst a group of them that, that surrendered on the second day. And fairly quickly, as I understand it, he identifies himself to somebody from the United States as having been born in the United States. One way Before the, he was transferred to Guantanamo? Well, that, I've seen that claim. I've seen huh. that claim. I don't know if it's true or not, but either way, because I'd always, I'd always understood that that the government did not that. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe the government, maybe the right hand didn't talk to the left hand. I'd always understood that at least senior government officials didn't know he was a citizen until after he'd been transferred to Guantanamo. That could. That's actually what I'd always thought too. And then I read something earlier that suggested that he had, hmm. he had revealed it earlier. No, That'd be weird. Neither here nor there. Um, he ends up at Guantanamo, as do. You know, some, but certainly not all, of the uh, persons who went into U.S. custody can in I, Afghanistan. Can I add one more piece of the story yeah, just before please. we get to Guantanamo? So I, I, there's also, I mean, this is also a period of time where the United States was paying a bounty to the Northern Alliance for each person who was turned over to U.S. custody. And so there was always at least an allegation by Hamdi through his lawyers that he actually wasn't even you know, necessarily in the right place at the right time. Obviously, there's plenty of evidence suggesting yes, the contrary. There is. Yes, yes, But it's, you yes. know, it's at least, it's worth stressing that Hamdi was not in the act of active combat operations when he was placed into U.S. custody. It's certainly true that he wasn't caught sort of shooting right. and then he in ran out of bullets and then, and then, right, and, and very few people, you know, were. No, no, I know, uh, but just, so, so insofar as it's like, oh, if, if the U.S. captures a soldier on a battlefield, yeah, sure. yeah. well, that's not really this case, right? Uh, actually, I think that completely is this case, but it's not the case that they caught him firing his gun at them. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. But on the battlefield, I, I mean, if they're not actually in the midst of fighting, that doesn't mean it's not the battlefield. No, no, and he's is, traveling with a my, Taliban military formation. My point is just that when it comes time to talk about the procedural process, right, that, the, the re- that, that I think it's relevant— that he wasn't that that he was in cu- someone else's custody before he was transferred to the U.S. and that therefore the basis for his initial capture was nothing the U.S. could testify directly to. That's certainly certainly accurate. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, they he ends up at Gitmo, and what you've got let's let's try to summarize, Steve, sort of the state of play as to the the habeas question. We should back up and say that the first detainees arrive at Gitmo, uh, January, January 2002. 2002. This was preceded, I think this is always so interesting, this is preceded by DOJ internal uh, analysis of what might be the consequences if they bring people out of Afghanistan into Gitmo. Again, the, the baseline isn't that they're at Gitmo. The baseline is that in theater, the military is beginning to take people into custody. And then on a separate track, much less visible to the public at the time, uh, CIA is beginning to get its hands on people as well, including through the uh, direct action of CIA officers abroad, grabbing people in various locations, but more frequently through uh, local security forces in places like Pakistan, grabbing uh, individuals and turning them over to U.S. custody. So there's this looming question as you get into December of 2001, going into January 2002, 
are all these people going to be held at what is you know turning out to be the what's ultimately going to be the Bagram Air Base uh, detention facility that eventually becomes the detention facility in Parwan? What about in, in Ditto at Kandahar? Are they all going to be held in Afghanistan? Plus, later we learn, you know, CIA black sites, or might there be some other place where the U.S. military holds detainees uh, relatively overtly? Um, and the idea of Gitmo comes up. And Steve, do you want to say anything about how Gitmo, uh, in relation to Haitian refugees, had come up previously, and there'd been prior, you know, back and forth about what that meant in terms of court access? Yeah, I mean, during the Haitian refugee crisis in you know the early 1990s. The U.S. had used Guantanamo as basically a facility for a very different kind of detention. I mean, that was more sort of temporary, short-term, mm-hmm. you know, migrant detention. Yeah. Nothing Not, to do with national security. Right. But it was it was close. It was accessible. It was um, well-secured. And it wasn't on U.S. soil. So those were all sort of factors. Um, I don't know if folks know the geography of it, but just, you know, Guantanamo is on the south side of Cuba. Um, which, among other things, meant for a while that to fly there, you had to fly all the way around, around the island it, of yeah. Cuba before you got there, um, which meant it's very close to Haiti. Um, and so with regard to sort of what to do with all the Haitian refugees, Guantanamo was sort of an obvious geographic place if you wanted to avoid the legal consequences of processing them on U.S. soil. Is it, base, is it fair to say that uh, once you have dry foot on U.S. soil, if they brought them to Florida— uh, as the refugees were being collected at sea, uh, it would it would certainly open the door for them or the lawyers that would act on their behalf to uh, seek various forms of relief, to claim asylum, to go to federal courts, to make the courts involved. Uh, totally. Uh, yeah, and, and so the Clinton administration stoutly resisted that, and they tried to uh, fend off judicial review uh, for, for years. And so ultimately, uh, it was a bit of a confusing judicial record left by Guantanamo in the 90s. Um, are, are you prepared to say anything about the sale decision and, and just, how I that mean, went just, down? I mean, basically, it was just a question of, like, could, did the government have the power to do this, right? You know, was there any sort of legal problem with holding them there? And the court basically sort of ducked, right? right. I mean, there's this, there's litigation over the rights of these refugees, and the courts don't reach any big constitutional questions. They just find a way to sort of mostly make that litigation go away. And so if you're a DOJ attorney in late 2001, looking at the prospect of perhaps taking some detainees out of Afghanistan and putting them at Gitmo as a as a safer, more convenient location than in-theater detention, uh, there's this question, of looking back on that litigation, did it suggest that there would be judicial review available uh, if you made that move? It, that is to say, would it be more likely for there to be habeas review if you brought them to Guantanamo than with the status quo where they're still out there in theater in the combat zone? Uh, and John Yu and another DOJ lawyer wrote a memo that later became public. And it's actually, I think, a very fair, even-handed memo. And, and, and frankly, I think it contrasts pretty sharply with the interrogation memo that followed later. But this one basically says, look, this is a, this could go either way. It, it puts the client fairly on notice that their argument's running this way. Their argument's running that way. It is possible that if we do this, the courts may assert habeas jurisdiction. So that was, a, that was in contrast to some of the interrogation stuff, that was a good bit of lawyering by DOJ. Uh, whoever the relevant decision makers were decided, well, let, let's go ahead and try this. Seems worth it. But this is a big deal because in, in Boumedian, Justice Scalia actually quotes from part, he selectively quotes from part of a memo. I, I don't remember if it was that memo or a different memo. This is the one that Paul Clement was involved in. That's um, a different one, I that's think. That's a different yeah. one. Um, and he selectively quotes from it where it basically said, we believe that a proper reading of, among other cases, Johnson versus Eisentrager, the Supreme Court's 1950 decision, um, is that the federal courts will not exercise habeas jurisdiction over Guantanamo. 
And Scalia quotes that, and then he stops. And the next sentence, and Scalia says, therefore, you know, the 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 government was relying in good faith on what they thought were our right. Um, yeah, the it's next interesting. Se- the next sentence of the memo says, but there is significant litigation risk. Um, yeah, that, that that might be the same memo because that's exactly right. the position in the U memo. And that's and that's yeah. the care. And and that's I think that point gets lost, which is that even in late two thousand one, the Bush administration can the relevant the smartest lawyers in the room. We're telling their superiors, listen, you there's can, a risk. There's a risk. Yeah, you know, this isn't squarely foreclosed. Right. Um, so we should say something about Johnson v. Eisentrager because at that time, the the most pertinent precedent did seem to be Johnson v. Eisentrager, a case that used to loom really, really large and I think is getting, you know, over over time, Bamedian has kind of squeezed it out a bit. But this was a big world, post-World War II decision involving the detention uh, in the uh, Landsberg prisons, uh, Steve, same place where Hitler had been during his time uh, before his rise to power, where he wrote Mein Kampf. So a place that sort of has this, uh, you know, this horrifying history about it. Uh, there are, after World War II, people who've been convicted in, in various military fora for uh, war-related crimes, Germans being held there. And some German military officers who had been in the far east—they actually east, weren't military officers. They Sorry, weren't. Can, okay. I be, can I be pedantic for a second? Oh yes, they please, were, please do. They were German. Go- they were civilian officials of the German government exercising an intelligence function in China. So is it fair to say they were the equivalent of German CIA officers operating in support of Japanese allies in the Far East in the Chinese theater? And the basic charge against them, I actually wrote a paper about this once, the basic charge against them was that even after Germany had surrendered, they continued supporting the Japanese military operations in and around Nanking and were therefore violating a surrender. Right. And and an allied military tribunal had convicted them of this. A U.S. military tribunal. Yeah. It, um, in China, right? right? So a U.S. military person in China convicts them. They're moved to Landsberg for detention, at which point um, a lawyer in Washington tries to bring a habeas petition on their behalf. Right. And suffice to say, it didn't go well. Justice Jackson writes uh, an opinion that is pretty I, – I think it's fair to characterize it as uh, as strongly rejecting the claim – uh, that they have Fifth Amendment due process rights and that they have the right to access the courts. He talks about how, um, you know, this isn't unrelated to the war. This is post-war environment in which the military uh, situation is, is still somewhat fluid, although this is years later, Steve. What was it, 1951? 50. 50? 50. So uh, it's years later, but nonetheless, sort of paging Mary Dudziak, this is sort of a, a good example of peacetime versus wartime divisions. Steve's giving me that look like he's been looking at the phone and sees breaking news. Do we have breaking news? We do. Should I, should I pause? Can uh, I pause wanna, for a second? Oh, we're actually, we had, we've never even paused. We're pausing, listeners. We'll be right back. And we're back. Bobby, we've never. This is this is. We're so out of kilter. We've never done a pause before. Do we even know how to do that? Like, are we are we still recording? Now? I hope we are. If 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 we're not, this is going to be very sad. All right. All so, right. listeners, here's what happened. Um, because I am an obnoxious person who tends to try to multitask when Bobby is educating us all, and this, therefore misses this, all of his more. It's like having points. lunch with my kids. Exactly on right. the phone. Um, I noticed two developments that basically just happened minutes apart that we thought might merit starting this episode over. The first is the D.C. Circuit decided Al Alwi in which they basically, Bobby, I think, to neither of our surprise, um, reaffirmed that there is still detention authority for Guantanamo detainees under the AUMF, that the conflict has not, um, uh, that, that the authority hasn't unraveled per Hamdi. Yes, uh-huh. we'll come back to that. Um, nor has it expired. That's not surprising. 
perhaps more surprising, a three-judge panel of the Ninth Circuit in Rodriguez versus Swartz um, has sustained a Bivens remedy in a I didn't know that was possible case. to do anymore. Well, this creates a circuit split. And as it happens, I'm in the middle of writing the reply brief in favor of certiorari in the Fifth Circuit cross-border. What a lovely time. Thank you, Ninth Circuit. It's very convenient. Right? So we, we while we were paused, we discussed what to do. Should we just can this episode and start over by doing deep dives on those new things? I think no. We'll, we'll come back to them and account for them in more detail next week. Uh, and hopefully that will be the beginning of all sorts of interesting topics for us to cover. But I think we're going to stay with our Hamdi story. Let's, let's stay with Hamdi. So here, where we were in Hamdi is we were talking about Eisentrager. So back to Eisentrager for a second. I actually think you and I have slightly different takes on Eisentrager. Um, Eisentrager is, is, as Paul Clement once said, I think very cleverly in oral argument in the Supreme Court, a decision with an awful lot of alternative holdings. Um, it is sometimes read as categorically foreclosing due process rights for non-citizens abroad. It is sometimes read as categorically foreclosing access to the courts for non-citizens abroad. I've actually argued in some detail that if you look at the doctrinal context in which it arose, it's really a far narrower decision um, that basically says because the military commissions that convicted the Eisentrager petitioners had jurisdiction, and Jackson spends 15 pages walking through why he thinks it had jurisdiction, there's nothing for the federal courts to do. That it was basically a merits decision um, applying a very deferential standard of review to a collateral attack on a military commission. Um, there's language in there that can be read that way. There's language that can be read the other way. The key point, Bobby, is that there was at least some ambiguity circa late 2001 about whether Eisentrager would foreclose jurisdiction over Guantanamo or not. And the biggest reason why was this subsequent case called Braden, which the Supreme Court decided in 1973, which basically said, you know, as long as a federal district court has jurisdiction over a prisoner's custodian, it does not matter if the district, if the prisoner is in the district or not. Right, that's certainly true. That the uh, the baseline generic habeas law had changed in the meantime, and it's it's one reason why you end up you do end up getting a different opinion. There's there's a lot of Jackson language in Eisentrager that is very specific to the context of circumstances in which someone is in military custody overseas, uh, and and a lot of language about the practical limitations on. I guess they were they were functional arguments to the effect that the courts should not haul military commanders into uh, should not allow military detainees overseas who are non-citizens who are held outside the United States to haul their commander into court. The mm -hmm. distraction that would provide to the commander's uh, you know obligations in theater overseas. These were all arguments that did Jackson sounded very loudly. Sure, but you're, but you're certainly right that there are many factors, especially including the fact that these were people who'd been through an actual prosecutorial process mm -hmm. for whatever its process was worth. It was a process, and they'd been uh, convicted on that basis. And the Hamdi situation, like that of all the other Guantanamo detainees, it, it was different in that respect. But, but critically, Hamdi's a citizen, and hence he's automatically, even without respect to the other distinctions, he's automatically distinct in a really relevant way. Or, or so it seemed to, I think, to many of us. Um, the and presumably to the government, because they moved him, right? Well, so they did move him, and yet they did not concede that that meant he had court access. So they moved right. Hamdi stateside. At some point, as we were saying earlier, there, there's this confusion about when did they realize he's a citizen. At some point, they take him out of Gitmo. 
And was he taken to South Carolina? Was uh, he, he was taken to Norfolk, North Virginia. Norfolk, Virginia. Okay. So he's at a naval brig in Norfolk, Virginia, but he's still held as an enemy combatant. This is not a transfer into civilian custody. All it is is a change of geography. Uh, I've always interpreted that, Steve, as a sign that there was appreciation because his people were fully aware, the government was fully aware that this guy was going to have a much different uh, degree of clear access to courts, however much they were planning to resist it. He had a good chance of getting access to the courts. They didn't want, to the extent they could avoid it, the outcome in his case to spill over as to all the non-citizens who they hoped to keep in the Johnson v. Eisentrager bucket at Guantanamo. Totally so. And so and so, whatever you thought the right answer was in his case, you wanted to treat his case differently. Exactly. Yep. So they move him to Virginia in early 2002 after Guantanamo. I mean, he's at Guantanamo for not very long. Guantanamo right. opens January 11th. Um, by late April, he's in the Navy brig in Norfolk. Um, and the federal public defender for the Eastern District of Virginia files a habeas petition on his behalf on May 10th. So this is, you know, it's hard to realize, it's hard to appreciate in retrospect. This was early. Yeah, there weren't, I think uh, the Garibay case out in California came up maybe a little sooner than that, but it's among the first. And I think the first Guantanamo habeas petitions had been filed as well, but, um, yep. you know. Yep. So so this is sort of, um, you, you have this panoply of, of detainees, a small number of attorneys willing to represent them, getting involved. Uh, it was by no means the cause celeb that it later became. In fact, this was still in no, Europe. No, it was. You didn't talk about it if yeah, you were it was, involved. It was, it was potentially costly to your to your business model, etc. That later on did flip, and, and it became you know downright trendy, at least to some extent, uh, to have you know a pro bono thing at your firm that included a Gitmo detainee. But at, at the time in 2002, that certainly wasn't the atmosphere. So uh, the government takes the position in general, that the Gitmo detainees don't have access to habeas under the Johnson v. Eisentrager precedent. But interestingly, they take the same position, don't they, Steve, that uh, the case... What you, Tell me, what was the government's position on the citizen detainee, Yasser Hamdi? Was it that there should be no habeas jurisdiction or simply that it's basically pro forma, the, gov- the government's entitled to binding deference. So it's actually, uh, it was somewhere in between, right? So the government actually initially argued that it was all but a, that was basically a political question and that it wasn't even really justiciable. Um, Now, Judge Dumar, the district court presiding over the case, rejects that argument and goes further um, and and holds that Hamdi's, um, that the public defender should be allowed to proceed on his behalf and should be allowed to meet with Hamdi. So this leads to, there actually are four Fourth Circuit decisions before the case gets to the Supreme Court. And in the first two, the Fourth Circuit pushes back against the district judge and says, no, Hamdi doesn't have a right to meet with his lawyer. No, the lawyer is not his next friend, at least initially, although they subsequently, you know, the lawyer then tracks down Hamdi's father. Right. <clears throat> and then it's like, okay, that's fine. Um, but the Fourth Circuit, I think this gets lost in a decision called Hamdi 2. The Fourth Circuit says, but we are the we the courts have the power to decide this. Right. We uh, should explain what the, this is. What were the what the nature of uh, Hamdi's claims are? Basically, they're they're sort of a two tiered claim. First of all, as you described earlier, he didn't concede that he was a Taliban fighter. 
Right. Um, the argument was that I was innocent bystander, grabbed up in the bounty program, et cetera. Like if you were if you were an Arab in Afghanistan who happened not to be there to fight for the Taliban, there was a really high risk that you would nonetheless be grabbed and depicted that way by the Northern Alliance or, or by others and, and turned over to the United States. And the United States at that point just assumed you were who the Northern Alliance claimed you were. Uh, so there's the false positive claim saying like, hey, I'm not who you think I am as a factual matter. Uh, separately, there's a legal claim to the effect, well, there's there's a collateral legal claim to that, which is that you have to give me more of a chance to make that argument. So it's both a factual contestation and a procedural objection saying, as a matter of due process, I'm a citizen, Fifth Amendment due process rights, I need a chance to put on evidence showing what an innocent bystander I was, mm-hmm. and I want to have a better bite at the apple for contesting your evidence that shows supposedly that I was a Taliban fighter. So you've got the factual dispute, the Fifth Amendment due process argument around that, but then there's a separate substantive legal objection to the effect that a citizen, that there's inadequate statutory authorization to detain him in the first place, which brings us to uh, both the Emergency Detention Act and especially the Non-Detention Act of of 1971. Um, Suffice to say that since 1971, there's been a statute we've talked about on this show many times, the Non-Detention Act, that suggests very clearly that if you're a citizen, you can only be detained pursuant to statutory authority. It's a it's a law of the land type of provision. It was expressly designed uh, both to override an earlier 1950 statute that appeared to create authority for emergency non-criminal detention for security purposes, which is a, which is a remarkable thing, and that history des- deserves more attention than it gets. Um, and then also a, a belated reaction to the Japanese internments in particular, which is just the sort of thing that might happen if you have an emergency detention system. Uh, the Japanese uh, internments by 1970, 1971 had, had finally come around to being perceived as the travesty that they were. And the Non-Detention Act uh, was a way for Congress to say, look, we're, we're going to put in the statute that that simply can't happen. There has to be a statutory pr- uh, basis if you're going to detain somebody. Uh, Hamdi says, well, I'm a citizen and I don't see anything in statute that expressly says you can detain anybody, let alone a citizen. Right. Therefore, or you have to let me go. Uh, the government, of course, takes issue with all this. But having said all that, let's go back to the to the Fourth Circuit's interventions. Um, against that backdrop, what happened below? So, okay, the the what basically happens is the Fourth Circuit, after Hamdi two, sends the case back to the district court one more time, basically for one more chance. They were getting frustrated, and Judge Harvey Wilkinson is basically writing the majority opinions for the panel in each of these cases, and Wilkinson is getting increasingly frustrated with Judge Dumar, who he thinks is pushing too hard, pushing too aggressively. So finally, in Hamdi 3, um, the Fourth Circuit just decides the whole case. They stop waiting around for Dumar to go piecemeal, and what they basically hold is two different things. One, Hamdi's detention was in fact authorized um, by some combination of the AUMF, a couple of other statutes they point to sort of obtusely, and the president's Article II power as commander-in-chief. And two, Hamdi was not entitled to anything more than, quote, some evidence. Um, the some evidence standard, a, at that point, well-established standard of administrative law, where basically a government action is sustained as long as the government had any, you know, sort of non-arbitrary basis yeah. for it. 
Yeah. Um, right. That some evidence is not an adversarial process. Some evidence is we had some yeah. rational reason to do what we did. You must be able to show that you had some basis. In fact, it doesn't matter if it's terribly persuasive or if there might be competing evidence. As long as you had something, that's all we're here to check. We want to make sure you're not just doing this as a matter of discretion. That's right. Like rational basis review, basically. And the other, now the other thing is, and it's worth stressing, um, the Hamdi three opinion also took a very dim view of the relevance of international law, um, which is something that we'll come back to. So Hamdi three provokes uh, the public defender who's now representing Hamdi's father to seek rehearing on bonk. Um, there are some really interesting, there's an interesting fight among the Fourth Circuit about whether to rehear parts of it on bonk. There's a bit of a schism between Judge Wilkinson and Judge Ludig, um, for example, but the on bonk effort fails. And so Hamdi petitions for certiorari in the summer of 2003, um, maybe the fall of 2003. Yep. Now, it's worth stressing that at the same time, there's another case involving a U.S. citizen that's also making its way to the Supreme Court. That's Jose Padilla. Um, Padilla is arrested on a material witness warrant getting off a plane at O'Hare Airport on May 8, 2002. One month later, the attorney general designates him an enemy combatant, transfers him to a military brig in South Carolina, where, you know, his habeas litigation follows. The district court, uh, Chief Judge Mukasey, initially upholds Padilla's detention. Bobby, in December 2003, um, the Second Circuit reversed. And this mm -hmm. was actually one of the major, I think, shocks. Right. On the same day, the Ninth Circuit in the Grebbe case held that it had jurisdiction over Guantanamo, even though the lower court, the D.C. courts had said no. And the Second Circuit says Jose Padilla's detention is unlawful because it wasn't um, it didn't satisfy the non-detention act. Yeah, those were really surprising opinions, especially because back then it used to be it was almost a cliche. People would say that in times of war, the courts, you know, defer heavily to the executive branch, and there was this notion that courts really don't have the nerve to to cross swords with the executive branch on such issues. This was very much still at a time, um, even, you know, there, it's tempting in 2018 to, to say that, uh, well, you know, the, there's not much of an atmosphere about war, notwithstanding the constant uh, combat operations the United States to this day continues to be engaged in, in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Um, back then, it, it much more felt like a, a war-related environment. And so for the, these courts in these two cases to so strikingly break with the executive branch, I think made people pause and think, huh, so I guess the courts do have a little more uh, independence than we thought. Right. I mean, the the up until that point, I mean, Judge Dumar had been the most aggressive and he hadn't ruled against the government on anything except procedural issues. Yeah. Then there's this remarkable moment in December 2003 where both of these courts push back pretty hard. I think that's a big moment. Now, part of why I think that's relevant is because had Hamdi gotten to the Supreme Court by itself, I'm not sure the court would have granted certiorari. But Hamdi comes to the court in early 2004 alongside Padilla and Razul, which is the Guantanamo case testing whether there's even habeas jurisdiction over Guantanamo. Right, statutory habeas jurisdiction Correct. in that case. And so the court actually, if I remember the chronology correctly, I think the court granted Razul first. And then on the same day, grants both Hamdi and Padilla. Yeah, June 28th, 2004 was a big day in our business. But I, th I mean, but I think folks were surprised that they granted Hamdi and Padilla. I mean, I think there was some... Oh, you're talking about the grant. I'm sorry, I'm talking yeah. about the ruling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so the rulings, yeah, yeah. the rulings all end up on the same day. They were argued yeah. on different days in April yeah. 2004. Um, so yeah, the, the Hamdi thing was a shot across the bow because the government had won and it seemed like, well, they'll probably just, you know, sign off on, on the Fourth Circuit's resolution of it. Well... Now you've got these other circuits going the other way, and now the court's taking the case. And also, now it, at that point, it's a couple of years into the to the global war on terrorism, the GWAT, <laughs> as one used to say. 
And there were beginning to be stronger and stronger narratives. Now, I forget the exact day when Abu Ghraib in the photographs broke with the 60 Minutes It was story. the day of the oral argument in Hamdi and Padilla. Was it, was it on it was the oral argument night. day? It was that night. Yeah, That's, but it wasn't before Paul Clement spoke, though. No, no. So Justice Ginsburg, I think during the Padilla argument, asked if the government tortures. Right. And Clement says no. No, we don't do that. And that night, the photos broke. Right. And that, of course— was a complicated interaction between what the photos represented and what Paul was saying, but the, the narrative impact was huge. So the, the point I think we're trying to make here is that the, the overall sense of concern in some segments of the public about how the war on terrorism was unfolding and the, 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 the murkier legal and moral issues that, that eventually became very big public issues, this is around the time that that's beginning to emerge into the public's eye. The Abu Ghraib photograph release I would say, was a, a clear pivot point in public paying attention to these issues I think and that's getting right. concerned. I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb, though, and say I think it may have had a larger impact on Razul than on Hamdi and Padilla, right? That I think, I think the, you know, because we'll get to the opinions in Hamdi, right? But that I think, I don't know that anyone would have voted differently in Hamdi, but for the photos, I think it's quite possible the photos helped, if not yeah. push, Justices Kennedy and O'Connor to join the lefties in Razul at least sort of you know yeah I think that's shored probably. up shored up their 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 belief that it was the right thing to yeah, do yeah absolutely I completely agree with that um, all right so let's so let's pivot to the opinion so we get to June 28, two thousand four um, I'm clerking on the Ninth Circuit um, having worked a bunch on these cases right when they were working their way up and these come down and it's like holy cow yeah I was sitting in my office at uh, Wake Forest there I still go. taught at uh, lovely uh, Wake Forest back then. And uh, it was just sort of like, oh, man, hit print, get out pen, start processing. There was a lot going on. Too bad we didn't have our show then, uh, but we're making up for it now. Indeed. Um, so, so, so why don't we first describe we the really f- who was – Oh, yeah. All right. Well, so I was going to start with the two holdings, and then we'll break out the opinions. That sounds good. Right? So as I teach Omni, and I think you teach it very much the same way, the, from a sort of student perspective, the most important point is to understand that there were two distinct holdings by yeah. the court in Hamdi. Yeah, and both – Titanically important in their own right. And going a different direction. Absolutely. All right. So I think you agree with me that the first holding was a 5-4 majority. Um, and that's going to be the four justice plurality and Justice Thomas. Exactly. Agreeing that the government does have the lawful authority to detain Hamdi as an enemy combatant on the facts as alleged by right. the government, notwithstanding the Non-Detention Act. Now, right. there's some daylight as to why, and we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. Then the second holding, which I think I, I usually teach as six to one, um, right, with Stevens and Scalia just staying out of it, um, is that the, the, even though Hamdi, as the government alleges, is lawfully detained, he's entitled to more than just some evidence, that the due yeah. process clause guarantees him a meaningful opportunity to contest the legality of his detention before a neutral decision maker. And although the court refrained from saying exactly what rules have to apply to such a hearing, some evidence was insufficient. Indeed. And, and the only thing I would add is it's absolutely it's 6-1, as you say, with the little asterisk that, you know, it's it's fair to assume that if somehow uh, Stevens and, and Scalia had been forced to weigh in on that issue, they, they certainly wouldn't have said, no, that's too intrusive or anything like that. So it's sort of a shadow 8-1. to one. I think that's right. All right. So let's break out. So there are four opinions, right? Um, and I think... Three of them get a lot of attention. I actually think one of them doesn't get enough attention. And we'll talk. So let's do the four opinions. So the 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 plurality opinion, and just for non-law listeners, right? When the when the Supreme Court doesn't produce a majority for a rationale, but does produce a majority for a judgment, which in this case was to 
affirm Hamdi's detention, but send it back for more process. Exactly. Um, the 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 opinion, you know, one the justice who basically has the nominal opinion of the court writes what's called a plurality opinion. Now, a plurality opinion does not have the same force as a majority opinion. It does not bind lower courts, but it tends to be especially persuasive authority, um, all the more so whereas in Hamdi, it's a four-justice plurality. Right. And so since you didn't have a complete meeting of them, so there are five justices who want to uphold the government's authority if the facts are as the government claims they are. It's just that Thomas's rationale is different. It's it's far more sweeping and it's different from what the other four and less reliant upon statute, it, right? And, and yeah, to say the least. Right. Yes. All right. So the plurality opinion. Let's just be clear. The four in the plurality are Justices O'Connor, Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justice Kennedy, and I think this gets lost. Yeah. Justice Breyer. Yeah. Right. The swing vote in Hamdi on the authority question was Breyer. Um, so the the plurality opinion basically says two different things. One. Um, we think the AUMF does satisfy the Non-Detention Act, mm-hmm. um, and we therefore don't have to decide messier constitutional questions because we understand the AUMF to incorporate traditional principles of the laws of war and detention of battlefield ca- uh, captures, right, right, was always understood as a necessary incident of the laws of war. Exactly so. And, and I want to underscore something that usually gets lost in this discussion. Uh, in making that determination, the court never talks, the plurality opinion never talks explicitly about the fact that these detainees, Hamdi and the others, are being held, yes, as enemy combatants, but they're not being held as POWs, right? So the, the, the key and deeply controversial innovation, if you will, I'm not sure it's an innovation, but it was certainly framed that way by many critics, uh, of the detainee model the United States has had since late 2001 is holding people on the grounds that they are combatants, but they're not eligible for treatment as POWs because they're not lawful combatants. That is, they haven't met the very well-established, long-standing standards for eligibility to be treated as a POW. And why does that matter? It's not just that the POW status category gets you the bells and whistles of the uh, fully developed, full Geneva Conventions. It's also, it carries with it combatant immunity from prosecution for your ordinary non-law of war violation war-related actions. That's the real big deal. That's right. So the idea was these people can be held like combatants, just like soldiers, but unlike soldiers, they don't get immunity from prosecution. Why is that? Because they're not fighting for any recognized state at bottom. That's that's the, the core claim. Um, and in any event, even though sometimes non-state actors can also get POW status only by complying with the laws of war themselves, et cetera. Uh, so the claim was these guys, all the Guantanamo detainees and all the detainees elsewhere, none of them qualify for POW status. O'Connor and company were well aware of this. This was, this was very prominent as part of the public debate about what the United States was doing. They blow right past that and assimilate all of what is currently being done at Guantanamo to the law of war tradition of detaining combatants. So, which, which provokes some pushback from Justices Souter and Ginsburg. Exactly so. So uh, this is this is from the government's perspective one of the biggest wins they could possibly get, and to this day it continues to be uncon- uncontested in judicial rulings since Hamdi that that it's okay to treat the combatant category, which is rooted in the POW model, as inclusive of the ineligible for POW status no, no, right. enemy fighters. Uh, so so uh, Hamdi, Hamdi did a bunch of really important things, some good for the government, some bad. Yeah. But without question, 
the most important thing it did for the government had nothing to do with applying the AUMF to a citizen. Yep, and exactly. Had, it had everything to do with not believe with, with interpreting the AUMF on the government's theory of who it could detain to not necessarily be inconsistent with international law. Exactly. Even though I think there are folks to this day who believe that that was a terribly incorrect interpretation of international law. That, that is true. There, there are always critics. No, no, but I'm saying, no, but, and but it that, remains hotly contested. But, Absolutely. but, but settled by Hamdi. Absolutely. As a matter of U.S. Right. law. All right. So, right. so let's talk about how they read the NDA, read the AUMF right. as as containing this principle. That's really important, and it's different. I think you were pointing this out earlier. It's really different from how the Fourth Circuit, I think, had been approaching. Right. So this. the Fourth Circuit just basically was like, there's no requirement of specificity. Right. The Non Detention Act is, you know, even if it applies, it doesn't require much. Um, right. And then the Supreme Court. I think partly because of the Second Circuit's intervening Padilla decision, which had really read the Non-Detention Act robustly as all but a clear statement rule, right. carves out some space in between. Exactly. Um, and basically says that in this specific context, which is just someone captured in the context of active combat operations in Afghanistan. Yes. And O'Connor goes out of her way to say, I'm yeah. only talking about yeah. this context. Repeatedly, because she's well aware that we're beginning to detain people who are not connected to a combat zone. Well, more to the point, I mean, keep in mind, this is all being decided against the shadow of Padilla, right? On the same day, the court... Well, that's who I meant. Right. Yeah. You know, the court's decided, the court ducks in Padilla on a technicality, but in a four-justice dissent that Breyer joins... There's a footnote that says, we believe Padilla's detention is unlawful. And I bet both both of us did this in class back in the day when yeah. it was possible to spend time in class going over all this. You could do the math and you could lead students to the realization that, oh, wait a minute. If there were reached, five votes to rule There were five Padilla. votes. Yeah. So, um, so and, and just, just, to, just to, do, to explain our work out loud, right, we'll get to the Scalia-Stevens dissent. But because Scalia's dissent would have applied to Padilla as well, and because Breyer joined Stevens' dissent in Padilla in full— if Breyer and Scalia were both of the view that Padilla's detention was unlawful, that meant Padilla's deten- that meant there were five votes on the merits. This is a big part of why, when the case comes back to the yeah. Supreme Court, the government has to get rid of it. Because they, they, they knew they, they knew to a certainty they were going to lose. Right. And the difference is that for Breyer, it's in the mind of Stephen yep. Breyer. He's the key vote. The geography of capture mattered. The context of capture mattered. Combat zone. Combat zone with circumstances of regular conventional conflict to some degree present. That's one thing. Arresting a guy at O'Hare Airport, that's a different one. All right. So that's the so so O'Con- now O'Connor says, of course, listen, our opinion is based on traditional understandings of the laws of war. And she says, you know, if this conflict really is of indefinite duration, quote, that understanding might unravel, unquote. Which of course is this Delphic you know, Grutter versus Bollinger, like 25 years from now, we yeah, won't need race-based yeah, affirmative yeah, action anymore. I wasn't expecting that comparison. That's awesome. But it's, um, just, it's, it's, no, it's yeah, well, way to go, O'Connor. She, um, but, you know, it's, it was a very fair and I think a very uh, thoughtful point to say, look, yeah. we haven't decided this forever. Right. We ha- and we, ha- we haven't said detention for the purpose of interrogation is lawful. Exactly. And I think what that gets to is an appreciation that even as to Afghanistan, the scale and intensity of combat operations could, could uh, tail off over time. And it could eventually be the case that what you've got in Afghanistan ends up being pretty much like what you have in other overseas locations where, yes, members of al-Qaeda might be located. Yes, there's periodic violence, but maybe it's no longer at the level of armed conflict. Or at least you've entered into a gray zone where you need to reconsider, do uh, to to borrow from Orrin Kerr, do some equilibrium adjustment mm-hmm. for for uh, law of war detention. So she she flags that possibility and then says, but in any event, right now in the summer of two thousand four, it's a combat zone still. 
But but it's worth stressing just how narrow the plurality opinion was. That the big win for the government was actually not getting Hamdi's attention upheld. It was getting the whole theory blessed. Uh, yes. Right. Um, and I think there's clear. It's surely Thomas provided a fifth vote for that. But the plurality opinion was specific in regard to its interpretation of the AUMF as only covering that context: battlefield detainees in Afghanistan at that point in time. Um, okay. Three other opinions. We should probably walk through them a little more quickly. Um, Justice, let's do Thomas first. So Thomas provides the crucial fifth vote for detention authority, but he's far less, um, how shall I say, interested in the details, right? That that to Thomas, this isn't a close call. Thomas is much more um, in line with Judge Wilkinson's opinion for the Fourth Circuit, that there's a broad, there's broad authority from multiple sources to detain someone like Hamdi. The AUMF surely is some, Article 2 is some, this is all silly. Yeah, I think think it's fair to say that, so the the O'Connor plurality goes out of its way to say we are not answering the question of whether the president, as an Article 2 commander-in-chief matter, once otherwise properly engaged in fighting a war, has this authority to an extent perhaps that maybe even overrides the Non-Detention Act. They don't touch that. Thomas says Article Two authority, I think he says, uh, or at least strongly implies, that it's it's sufficient unto itself. The AUMF is belt and suspenders on top of that. Yep, I think that's right. And so, you know, that's one vote. Um, right. Okay. Um, surely the most surprising opinion. Which we should underscore that. Thomas is the only one of the nine right. who endorsed that uh, Article Two theory. And he's the only one of the nine who thinks that some evidence is sufficient, right? Um, that that he's the only justice in Hamdi who actually supports the Fourth Circuit's procedural analysis. Right. So should, should we go through the uh, the dissenting opinions on the AUMF question and then come back around to the process? Sure. So okay. um, so so on the on the AUMF question, um, you get two very different approaches from the two two justice dissents. So Justice Scalia writing for himself and Justice Stevens. As usual. As usual. Um, <laughs> writes this, Bobby, remarkable, and I think remarkably incorrect um, opinion, um, basically holding that not only doesn't the AUMF authorize the detention of a U.S. citizen as an enemy combatant, but it couldn't. Can't. Um, yeah. Because of the suspension clause. And so Scalia adopts this very specific view of the suspension clause as not a preservation of federal jurisdiction, but as a substantive protection of against um, extra criminal detention of U.S. citizens, right? That in Scalia's view, the, the suspension clause is the only way to detain a U.S. citizen without charging them with a crime is to suspend habeas corpus, and no one argued that Congress and the AUMF had suspended right. habeas no one, corpus. Right, no one claimed that. You know, it's so funny because I, I have some sympathy with the view that as a functional matter, that the nature is certainly bearing in mind its historical usage. The nature of a habeas suspension in Anglo-American tradition is in fact to effectively empower non-criminal, yeah. what, what we would today call preventive detention yeah. or emergency detention. Totally. Um, very much so. But the idea that you're uh, prohibited via an AUMF, even if they'd done it in clear statement terms, uh, from detaining U.S. citizens without the formalities of a suspension, it's quite remarkable in light of the precedent, right? So, yes, there's Milligan. Right. There's also, the, but there's Kieran. But there's Kieran. And now, now Scalia goes after Kieran, right? He says it was not this court's finest hour. And he says, in any event, it was about military commission prosecution, not detention without yeah. trial. Um, but yeah. I, I have a deeper problem with Scalia's dissent. Forget military detention. How about civil commitment of sex offenders? 
Um, right? Mm-hmm. Scalia writes the majority opinion for the Supreme Court in Kansas versus Hendricks, which upholds the civil commitment of sex offenders. Right. That's non-criminal detention of citizens. Or you could add in quarantine. There are there are other um, domains pre, of non-criminal uh, pre-trial, detention. Pre-trial denial of bail. Right. right? I mean, it's... No, it's just, it doesn't, it, it's a deeply, uh, really surprisingly libertarian opinion. Yes. yes, of course, he was libertarian in yeah, certain yeah. respects, but this, it was really something, sort of a, a citizen exceptionalism. Right. So I once got into trouble at a Senate hearing. Um, Mike Lee, who clerked for, for Scalia, um, was asking me if I agreed with his dissent um, in Hamdi. Uh-oh. And I said, with all due respect, Senator Lee, I'm not even sure Justice Scalia agrees with Justice Scalia's dissent in, in Hamdi. I'm sure. What did, do you remember what he said? It was, it was, a, it was an entertaining, it, we, yeah. we did fine. But, That's fine. Um, so, so, listen, there's a lot of in Scalia's dissent that's deeply attractive. I just don't think it accurately describes the system we live in. Yeah, oh, I, I I think it was uh, just wrong, as you said earlier. No, much more interesting is the opinion that doesn't get talked about very much because it's it's, it's 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 more complicated, it's more right. nuanced. But it's actually, and it's like I mean, there there are case books that have the other three opinions in Hamdi and not this one. But I actually right. think I actually think shocking, the correct opinion in Hamdi is the Cedar Ginsburg dissent. I know that shocks you. All right. I am shocked. I'm shocked. Uh, Defend yourself, sir. All right. So the Cedar Ginsburg dissent um, basically is very much along the lines of the Second Circuit's decision in Padilla Mm -hmm. and says, listen, this case really rises and falls on the question of whether the AUMF satisfies the Non-Detention Act. Um, And in addition to sort of all the reasons the Second Circuit gave, which is basically um, the Non-Detention Act is a clear statement rule, the AUMF has nothing in it whatsoever about detention, let alone detention of citizens, right? And even the plurality opinion, the point about you know detention being incident to the laws of war, it's not necessarily as obvious that detention of citizens is incident to the laws of war. And then they say, in any event, the author- if the source of authority to detain is the laws of war, you got to detain them consistently with the laws of war. And the you know the Suderginsburg dissent then spends a few pages talking about how at least from their perspective Hamdi's detention was not consistent with the relevant protections of the Geneva Convention, right. which is why I think they're just wrong and just weren't fair enough informed enough about the history of it. I, I, I actually I don't think the opinion rises and falls on that. I mean I I agree yeah. with them that they yeah, the, the, the non-detention act the is clear, clear statement rule. rules where the real departure is. So the the real battle in that case on that issue is yeah. the plurality versus Suderginsburg on. Just Should it be a clear it, statement? Right. Yeah, how clear does it have to be? I mean, what's the point of the Non-Detention Act, right? right. If, if you can if you can satisfy it with an implicit AUMF that doesn't say anything about detention, let alone detention of citizens. Yeah. So if I thought that that really was the slippery slope that they sort of portray it as, I'd be I'd be very concerned about that argument. I might find that even a persuasive argument to insist <laughs> on a clear statement. But I don't think it sets any kind of slippery slope. I don't think it opens the doors to well. Now you can do anything by citing any statute. I I think that the role of the laws of war. Prior Properly understood, yeah. sufficiently cabins it. So I, I, I just think I think there's a little room for constitutional avoidance too. But whatever. Yeah. Okay. Um, All right. So but, governments, but, but governments agree. high five and they're thinking. But, but we yeah. agree the whole fight is the very specific analysis of what the non-detention act requires. Yeah. And the battle between O'Connor and Souter. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, now Souter and Ginsburg then go on to say that even though they therefore don't think it is necessary to reach the question of how much process Hamdi's due, because they don't think he's lawfully detained in the first place, that they join the plurality opinion for the sole purpose of producing a majority, right? That basically, you know, this is our second best solution. Right. We, we, we don't believe he's lawfully detained, right? And we actually aren't even sure we agree with the plurality that only 
this much processes do. But we certainly agree that at least, least this much, this much yeah, processes it's a, it's do. It's a necessary condition. And so just to make it clear to the Fourth Circuit that this is not something they can, that this is binding authority, not persuasive authority, we are going to join that part of the plurality so I'm opinion. I'm curious, so the air quotes kind of treatment of that. Uh, why no one is, saw my air quotes. No, 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 that's why I had to say it. Um, why, isn't it why isn't it more accurate, or what is gained by characterizing it as such a reluctant joinder, as opposed to just saying, look, the second issue in the yeah. case on the process, the, the plurality actually gets that one right. They say that if there's, there's at least got to be this much process. But I, I don't think they thought the plurality got it right. I think the reluctance is that, so had it been a case where they thought the second part of O'Connor's opinion was perfect, right? They just didn't think they needed to reach it. Easy to write a paragraph that yeah. says, you know, although we don't agree that it's necessary to reach the process question, we, we certainly agree. We that, certainly agree yeah. that this is how we would do it. I think if there's language in Stuart's sentence that says we actually because well, they wanted a stronger statement of process. They wanted a stronger statement. Yeah. They wanted perhaps the court to hold that something like clear and convincing evidence right. was required for right. your attention of a citizen. But it's only two votes for that. If no, no, they, oh, yeah, no, right. right. So, so, so they don't say any of that. They right. just sort of tisk tisk the plurality opinion while giving it two more votes right. to bind the Fourth Circuit on remand. So that they take away on the second issue, and the way you need to think about it is the government's high-fiving, they're doing great, they're winning, they're winning. Then they get to the question of, all right, so notionally there's authority to detain American citizens who are captured as Taliban fighters in the battlefield in Afghanistan and to hold them as unlawful enemy combatants while the circumstances in Afghanistan remain as they were. However, there's the, the pivot right there where they say it's not good enough to have just a some evidence review. There's got to be a degree of adversariality, and this is where it becomes sort of a Matthews v. Eldridge kind of due yep. process trade-off of competing interests. With Scalia mocks. Yes, but and and yet it it seems just it seems to me just obviously right, and I, I assume it does to you. And the only place we might quibble is just how far the process has to go. And of course, there it, it's impossible to say that the law is really dictating things. We've never had a case like this right. before. I, We're all just right. going from priors about so actually, what the degree of fairness should. I, I actually demand. think O'Connor's discussion of Matthews is vintage O'Connor, um, right? And and you know, folks tend to sort of I think not appreciate just what kind of justice she was. This is O'Connor not being a justice. This is O'Connor being a judge, um, and and saying, listen. This is a messy case. Yeah, a lot of considerations going on. A lot of indeterminacy, a lot of indeterminacy about, about the law. About the law. Yeah. Here's a pragmatic. Here's here here's some guidance, right, yeah. to the lower courts. Like, you know, we're not telling you exactly how much process to afford. We're telling you what the questions are you should be asking when you're thinking about what process to afford on remand. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that regard, you know, Scalia accuses her of this, you know, Mister Fix It mentality um, and other desultory, you know, uh, right. remarks. I don't know what else she was supposed to do in right. that context. Well, so this all foreshadows Boumediene later Indeed. on very and, and much. And imagine if O'Connor had still been on the court. I mean, so what you see in the difference between the plurality opinion in Hamdi and the majority opinion in Kennedy, something we've talked about before, which is the difference between a centrist who's really a pragmatist and a centrist who's just a radical in both directions in different degrees, right? You know, Kennedy is a big theory guy who just gets pulled in different directions. O'Connor is a centrist. And that, I think, explains yeah. a lot of the differences in the, her efforts to calibrate what was going on on remand in Hamdi versus Kennedy's just sort of DC Circuit, go. Right. And so what's fascinating about this is uh, it set things up to where there should then have been or there could have then been a process where the lower court has to figure out, all right, what what kind of habeas hearing are we going to have? Is, is this guy going to get to testify? Is it all going to be on the record? How much? Uh, how many resources is he entitled to to try to build his case for being a false positive sort of innocent bystander? Uh, but we never find out because 
after the ruling. After all of this. After all that. The government's like, okay, uh, bye. And and so on one hand, yeah, they, they send him back. They, they cut a deal. He waves his citizenship. He, uh, he, he, vo- he, 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 quote, voluntarily, quote, voluntarily unquote, yeah. relinquishes his citizenship and agrees to certain travel restrictions. It's a detention plea bargain. Yes. Now, I still think there is a serious question about whether it is constitutional. So, yeah. You, relinquishment of citizenship must be voluntary and not just voluntary in like the loose criminal sense of voluntary, but like voluntary. And so it's not clear to me that having renunciation of citizenship as a condition of being released from incommunicado detention as enemy combatant is voluntary. And so that's what happens. He yes. goes back. I actually don't think there's been, I've not, I did a little poking around. I'm sure someone has gone and tried to write a sort of where is he now? What's he doing? Yeah, but, it's, um, it's but he's certainly been out of the news. Yep. Out of the news. So, so, let's, so let's just sort of, let's wrap this up by talking about what Hamdi settles and what it doesn't, right? And the shadows it continues to cast over this litigation. Okay. So I think we agree that Hamdi settles that the government has detention authority under the AUMF in general, right? That, that, that the AUMF does confer at least some detention authority. Clearly. That the, deten- that the detention authority is informed by, but not necessarily strictly consistent with, international law, right? Why the latter qualifier? Sorry, that, I'm sorry. That, that the detention authority includes the government's interpretation of the relevant international law authorities, okay. right? Which includes yeah. detention in this, you know, unprivileged, uh, sort of not privileged, right. not unprivileged paradigm. Right, just comba- combatants, however defined— Correct. Combatants can be detained Good. while the hostilities are continuing, okay. and no longer. And we should mention this because it's one of the most yeah. interesting lines in there. It's got to actually be preventive right. detention, which is the right. traditional not law for of interrogation. Not it can't be someone who you don't need to detain right. or who's not otherwise eligible, but they might have intel. Good. That's not a basis. Good. Um, it settles that there are at least some circumstances where a U.S. citizen can properly be detained under the AUMF, although yep. I think they're very limited. And it settles that if a U.S. citizen is detained, he's entitled to a fair amount of process exactly. in contesting his detention. So those last two holdings, of course, have a lot of relevance to Doe versus Exactly. Mattis. Exactly okay. so. Um, Hamdi doesn't settle a lot of other stuff. No. And, it, and there's Breyer, right? We've talked about how important Breyer is to Hamdi. Mm-hmm. Um, Breyer wrote a opinion respecting the denial of certiorari in 2014 in a Guantanamo case called Hussein versus Obama, where he went out of his way to talk about all the things Hamdi didn't settle and how maybe one day the court should yeah. find a case to actually decide these things. So among the things Hamdi doesn't settle is um, non-battlefield captures. Clearly, right. right? That, was, a, that was Padilla, and that was not addressed. Well, it, well, Padilla was the, the most extreme case, because it was not just non-battlefield. It was, it was US in soil. U.S. soil. Right. Right. Um, so non-battlefield captures, I mean, just imagine, like, a U.S. citizen picked up in France. Uh, sorry, not a citizen. A non-citizen right. with no, right, yeah. picked up in France. Um, doesn't sell non-battlefield captures. Yeah. Um, Although it's important to underscore, of course, there have been innumerable... Cert petitions that could have enabled the court, if it wanted to, to weigh in on the, just the sheer fact of non-battlefield capture. It could, right? No, for, no doubt. Um, they just haven't. Um, okay. Um, it didn't decide um, any question about limits on deten- on duration of detention. Um, it just said we're not confronted with that. You know, it's two thousand four. U.S. soldiers still on the battlefield. We don't worry about that right now. Right. Yeah. Um, anyway, I want to read from Breyer's statement, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, the court has not directly addressed whether the AUMF authorizes and the Constitution permits detention on the basis that an individual was part of al-Qaeda or part of the Taliban, but was not engaged in an armed conflict against the U.S. and Afghanistan prior to his capture, so mm-hmm. non-battlefield right. capture. 
nor have we considered whether assuming detention on these bases is permissible. Either the AUMF or the Constitution limits the duration of detention. Right? And to me, those are two of the big questions. Mm -hmm. Of course, the third huge question is, does the AUMF authorize detention of folks who aren't part of al-Qaeda or the Taliban? Right. The, the biggest question to me is, uh, is for years been these groups that are in some way affiliated or used to be affiliated, but right. are not, and, and are not the group as such. You and I agree, right, that Hamdi says nothing about this. Oh, yeah, right, clearly. Now, um, Breyer's centrality to things, of course, diminished over time Indeed. as changing appointments to the court. I, I think it's probably fair to estimate that the court on the national security vector is more conservative, more government-friendly with its current lineup. But but I don't know. I don't really know what Gorsuch, his position might be. So, I mean, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if Justice Gorsuch was deeply sympathetic to Justice Scalia, Scalia yeah. on, on, on the U.S. citizen piece of he this. He might be, yeah, but, um, no, but not for non-citizens. Not for non-citizens. And, yeah. and in that regard, I mean, listen, I, I, I think it is unfortunate that in 14 years— the Supreme Court has said nothing further about the AUMF, even though it has yeah. had perfectly plausible opportunities to do so. It's just chosen not to. And I think that's real. So to tie this to Al Alwi, the D.C. Circuit decision that came out while we were recording this podcast. Very timely. Um, the whole point of Al Alwi is that there's nothing in Hamdi that precludes the lower courts from saying there's still an armed conflict against Al Qaeda and the Taliban. You know, yes, it's 17 years later, but, you know, yeah. so what? So it's, it's always seemed to me obvious that detainees, even when losing their habeas petition the first round, should, in theory, be able to renew their petition if they have a plausible claim of changing factual circumstances such that there's no longer an armed conflict. Um, the problem with Al-Awi is that the the conflict, you know, the NPR this morning was, you know, talking about a series of Taliban attacks, killing this many people and that many people. The headlines have been filled with discussions about possible overtures to try to uh, bring the Taliban to the table. The conflict in Afghanistan continues on. So insofar as you've got detainees that are legacy detainees that have been captured in that context, I, I think the, the O'Connor breakpoint uh, of winnowing or, or, or thinned out detention authority hasn't been reached yet. And I, ga I gather that's what the Al-Awi uh, opinion basically says. That's right. And so, I, but I, you know, listen, I, you and I have thought about this specific point before. I, I think it's just it is unfortunate that the Supreme Court has not seen fit to 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 answer any of the unanswered of, of the many questions Hamdi leaves unanswered. And I, would, indeed, yeah. I think a lot of the litigation we talk about on a weekly basis on this podcast stems from the Supreme Court's non-engagement, right, in, in these issues. So I would say I share your staleness concerns and the need for refreshed legal legitimacy and political legitimacy, but I put the onus on Congress mm -hmm. and, to, and, and then to the White House, but especially Congress, uh, not the courts. And, and so just really quickly on Congress. So it's worth noting here that the FY 2012 NDAA, which we talk about in the context of Guantanamo detention, has a specific carve-out because there is a huge fight about whether Congress ought to be messing with Hamdi. Um, right, that yeah. that when when the when the issue was joined in Congress in late 2011, the whole fight was should Congress overrule Hamdi, which is what the more civil libertarians wanted to do. Should Congress codify Hamdi, or should Congress say nothing about Hamdi? And the ultimate compromise was door door number three. Right, that we're going to preserve yeah. the status quo, however ambiguous and unclear it might be for citizens and non-citizens with lawful status in the United States. You followed the proposals for restricting things more closely than I did. Was anyone advocating what to me would seem to be, if you were going to move in that direction, the only sensible way to do it, exempting the battlefield? In other words, yeah. keep Hamdi, but so yes to Hamdi, no to Padilla. Um, 
Yes, that was there was a provision. I think at one point there was a proposal to that would have expressly just said in Not, the U.S. In the U.S. Um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, Senator Feinstein has for years been pushing this Due Process Guarantee Act. And the Due Process Guarantee Act would actually go further and overrule Hamdi almost expressly. Right, which, is, which I'm saying is like, well, I wouldn't vote for that. Yeah, but I, mean, but but I, but I might be willing to vote for something that forbade about, I mean, military detention of a capture inside the United but Bobby, States. But, I mean, here we are 17 years later, right? And there's been exactly, what, two cases of U.S. citizens who have been battlefield detainees in, in military. I mean, I'm not talking about John Walker Lynn, right, because he was yeah. quickly. But Hamdi and Doe. Are the only two examples we have in 17 years who would be affected by that statute? Yeah, so maybe only not, us academics care about this stuff. No, I'm just saying maybe I'm just saying that maybe it wouldn't debilitate the government in the way that you know the detractors often. Or may, or maybe it's not the uh, the dangerous threat to liberties that that both, the libertarians uh, are concerned about. Uh, hey, you know we, yeah. we we come we come in all sides. It's both. All right. Um, so the best part I think about this topic of going back to the summer of 2004 is not so much the ability to give people a deep dive and graduate from law school, fulfill our vision of what this podcast was actually originally supposed to be like. This is what we thought we'd be doing yeah um it's to uh do a little 2004 frivolity can we talk about things that were popular in 2004 what, what was well i wasn't <laughs> yeah. I, i'm sure in the ninth circuit uh you know circles you were extremely popular no no you were you were like this clerk that the others i think uh, there's a story i think of uh, one of judge <laughs> reinhardt's clerks tells a story about how i developed this reputation where if there was like a super nerdy question about habeas or immigration call burzon's chambers and talk to that yale guy oh my god that's so great you know what it's better than than not being named for such things i guess um well i that was a good year for me that i was i was still a pretty junior law professor and i had gotten this i'm my most proud teaching moment i got the Teacher of the Year Award. Ooh. Um, and I've not gotten it since, and that, that pains me. <laughs> and I think I've gotten too busy, or, or else do you think that as we get more senior, we uh, lose the ability to connect as well with the students? I think that's part of it, and I think we also, we got busier. Um, I think, you know, realistically, you know, the 14th time you teach a class, you're not putting quite as much into it as the third and fourth time. Like, I, I still think that the optimal times to take a class with a professor are the second, third, and, second third and third times they teach it. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's good because I'm teaching cybersecurity for go. the second time this fall. Uh, okay, so let me talk a little bit about what was really popular across a couple of pop I just, I just pulled up the Billboard Top Hot 100 songs of 2004, and oh my God, this is bad. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Okay, first of all, like, Usher's in there like 50 times. Including first and second. Which, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And burn. I, I, I can't say I'm surprised that Yeah with Usher and Ludacris is, is right there at the top. I spotted uh, Maroon 5 had just kind of yeah. made it big. And so this love. The reason. Oh, my gosh. I was obsessed with that song. Who is that? Who mistake? Who <laughs> um, Outcast. I found a reason to show. Oh, oh my God. side of me you didn't know. <laughs> That's Steve singing, not the me. Reason. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. Um, of the songs that you kidding. still hear a fair amount, certainly Yeah, This Love. Hey ya. Hey ya. That's still um, my favorite thing I saw in there is a local, I think San Antonio-based band. I've mentioned them before. They're, I guess, somewhat obscure, but if you like sort of Stevie Ray Vaughan style blues rock, Los Lonely Boys, they're on there for heaven. And I'm not sure that might be their highest uh, charting uh, song, but check them out. They're so good. All right, now I'm gonna put you on the spot. Who are the nominees for Best Picture for Oscar Best Picture in 2004? Uh, is that Mystic River? So I gotta pull this up. I, I all I have right now is who won, uh, who nominated actor. Did so this, uh, this this captures our different sensibilities. You went for the best, the actual award winners. I wrote down the top money makers. Ah, uh, so we're the top money makers. <laughs> all right. So uh, Shrek Two was the top uh -huh. money maker that year. Just watch it again. Oh, Mister River, Bobby. Well done. Yeah, yeah. All right. So that was one of the five nominees. Um, 
Hmm. Sea Biscuit. Oh, Sea Biscuit was so good. Master and Commander, that. Far Side of the World. Top, uh, you I know, know, look, right? I, I love the Pat O'Brien books, and I enjoy that yeah. movie, but as a best picture? Mm. Lost in Translation. And yep. I have to say, so uh, the first time I met, Lost in Translation, I think, is a brilliantly underappreciated movie. I think it's great. It's Sofia just, Coppola, and right? And, and I didn't like it, and then I spent a summer in Japan. Oh, that's, that's exactly why you have to, yeah. And it's so... Perfect. It is. It nails it. I spent uh, a lot of time in yeah. Japan as a practicing yeah. lawyer, and that's the background I saw that movie in. Yep. I've been in that hotel that they're sort of like yep. trapped in there. In All fact, right. I saw Aerosmith in that hotel, not playing, uh-huh. just like on the elevator. But the, was there love in the elevator? <laughs> the temptation to say something. They were, so Steven Tyler and those guys were coming off the elevator as we were going up to the big restaurant out there. Were you living it up while you were going down? I, w- I so wanted to say something, but I chickened out. All right, but the Best Picture winner was the only – third part of a trilogy to ever win Best Picture. It wasn't Lord of the Rings, was it? It was. It was Return of the King. So I enjoyed those movies as much as the but next that's some geek, weak sauce. But that is not a Best Picture. Like, Lost in Translation is the only movie of those five that I think really... Uh, Mystic River. Mystic River. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. okay, so, t- okay, other By top way, money I saw makers. none of these movies because I was, like, chained to my desk Oh, I, I've seen all these. I love movies. Shrek 2, Spider-Man 2 was that year. Uh-huh. Meet the Fockers was that year. <laughs> Um, and now, now here, picking up a theme, there's going to be, in some of the stuff I mentioned, there's a lot of echoes to the present day. Uh, the Incredibles. So that's when the first Incredibles was out. And, you know, the sequel just came out again recently. Um, guilty Pleasure movie, Day After Tomorrow. You know, the one where there's like a uh, sudden ice age and uh, is it Dennis Quaid's got to get to New York to save Jake, Jake Gyllenhaal. That's a fun one. And equally Guilty Pleasure, equally fun, Nick Cage's National Treasure. Um, Will Smith in iRobot. That's a fun movie that has some nice sort of anticipations of 2018 anxieties about technology. Uh, both Dodgeball and Anchorman. Dodgeball was 2004? And Oh Anchorman. my gosh. Oh, how is that not best picture? Exactly. Wait, Anchorman or Dodgeball? you can dodge a I mean, wrench, you can dodge a ball. <laughs> ESPN 8. The, the, the Ocho. Ocho. <laughs> Sideways was that year, and I'm a little surprised you, you didn't love Sideways? I didn't love Sideways. All right. Um, all right. How about pivoting over to TV? There's a So TV in that era, like now, dominated by some reality shows. So all the usual suspects are in there, and plus the police procedurals. Uh, you've got the, the medical stuff like Grey's Anatomy, but ER was still on back then. Um, Apprentice and West Wing, both on the air. I think that's interesting. Was that, was that the last season of West Wing or the second to last? I don't know, but having The Apprentice and West Wing both pretty near each other in the ratings is, is sort of, I don't know, there's something poignant <sighs> about that. If only we knew then what we know now. All right, let me tell you real quick about books that were top sellers that year. Wow, you really did your homework. Well, I just, I love this stuff. Um, Philip Roth, The Plot Against America. I like that book a lot. I love that book, yeah, and I, I, like think, plot. I think it obviously has some resonance with... No. Yes. Proto-nationalism? Uh, <laughs> make America Great Again? Um, I have no idea what you're talking about. And also, Chernell's Hamilton, 2004. No way. Or at least it was still uh, in the top of the charts back then. I feel like I read it right about then. Yeah, that's the same here. Uh, and if you told me then that it was going to be a hip-hop musical and be the dominant... I would have bought, bought Yahoo at five. Oh, my God. <laughs> Right. Dear Lynn Miranda, can I fund you? Like, yeah, can I got a, a 0.1% stake in the enterprise. Whatever it takes, man. All uh-huh. right, that's all I got from 2004. That's a pretty good 2004 wrap-up, but you're missing, Bobby. I, I'm, sh- I'm, category? I'm stunned and shocked and horrified that you're missing the most uh, important thing that happened in 2004. Something in comics? Nope. What? Uh, lay it on Remember me. anything about the 2004 baseball playoffs? Oh, <laughs> was that Subway Series? No, no that was 2000. Was all right, lay it on me. 2004 was the Yankees going up 3 nothing in the ALCS. 
and the Red Sox. Oh, is this the Bloody Sox this, series? This is the Bloody Sox series. Kurt Schilling before yeah. he turned into a before bit he of, turned into a bit of a bit of a crazy character and his bit of a crazy character. Yeah. Um. So so 2004 in my sports memory will always go down for the ALCS and the completely anticlimactic World Series. Yeah, yeah. That was, that really was some great drama. Yeah. And uh, I think who's uh, your daddy? That's just amazing stuff. All right. Well, how, what time? How much did time did that take? Yeah. Good luck there, buddy. One hour and fourteen minutes. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an iron law of nature. Well, um, listen, if you're still listening, we're really curious if you like our deep dive approach, right? If you want to see more of these where we take some old case or old development and really tear it apart. Nominations, um, please. Nominations, always welcome. You can send them to at NSL Podcast, at Bobby Chesney, at Steve underscore Vladek. Um, and if you didn't like it, well, you're probably not still listening. So fair, fair point. We're safe. Stay safe out there. Adios.